This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to our 21st annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university, and it's our great honor to have the distinguished poet, Nikki Giovanni, with us tonight. Nikki... Nikki Giovanni is a legend. She was a significant voice in the black arts movement in the 1960s, and she still is significant today in the things we are facing as a nation. She's, her voice is just as prominent and just as distinct and just as important. She writes about race and about love and about life. Her spoken word poetry has won several national awards, was nominated for a Grammy, her poetry does not just have a, a, a feel to it, though. It's got a, you can, you can just, you, you can sense it. It, it just hits you on, in all of your senses. She's going to share some of her poetry with us tonight, and then we will sit for a while and uh, talk about her poetry. Would you give a writer's symposium welcome to Nikki Giovanni? Thank you. I uh, <laughs> am being, uh, what is it? Uh, I'm not embarrassed, but I'm, <laughs> it's like, well, damn, I'm not going to do as much as y'all think. <laughs> yes, I can. Brandon, you can keep your phone on because you're probably something. <laughs> the rest of them people have to turn their phone off. But I did see that, uh, and I, I realized to, to whatever degree it is, for those of us who write in the room, you know, what you are is a storyteller. And uh, what's important is to tell a story. And it rained this morning, you know, when I was coming over here, it was, uh, it was uh, raining. And I thought, about, I thought about a couple of things, but one of the things I wanted to share, because I saw that you all, some people have my Rosa Parks book. And I was just really thrilled because uh, I had the pleasure, of, uh, ultimately, of knowing Mrs. Parks. But of course, we all knew Rosa Parks because she started the Montgomery bus uh, boycott, which is going to lead to any number of other things. But uh, it was a rainy day, and I just thought I should share it with those of us who are writers. It was a rainy day in, in Philadelphia, before Philadelphia had the big airport, when they just had the, the little, well, you all wouldn't know, you're Californians, but it was just a, <laughs> it's just a little jet, you know, and it was one of those messy days. And I shared, I had lunch with the BSU this afternoon, and I am a nervous person. Now, you all don't know that, you have no way of knowing that, but I am a nervous person. And... What I had really done is I was, it was raining and I had to go up to Penn State. So you have to fly up and you fly up on a little plane. So you know that one day you're going to die. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, it's not that, you know, you think you're not going to die one day. It's just you're not ready to die now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I walked into the little, it's a little airport. It was really not much bigger than this. And I was like, oh, goodness. And because I am a nervous person, and some of you are a nervous person, I like to always know where my back is. I always like to know what's behind me. I'm not a coward, but I like to know what's behind me, because a lot of times what's behind you can be, you know, incredibly unpleasant. And so I walked in, 
and it was raining, so I knew that we weren't going to go on time because nothing goes on time from those little airports. And I looked around, and I found an area where my back was going to be to the wall, and that made sense because I have a skill that I'd like to share. I can sleep anywhere for indefinite amounts of time. I am wonderful. I actually slept all the way to Accra, Ghana, from New York. I, I can sleep, and it's, it's a skill, and I'm proud of it. So, <laughs> I am. so I sat down and had my back, and I thought, well, I'll just go to sleep until they call something. And I looked across the room, and it was one of those, damn, <laughs> that woman looks like Rosa Parks. And so I grabbed my glasses, because I can't see without them, and I said, that's, that's Rosa Parks. So now I have an object. And it was like, okay. Unfortunately, I don't want you to think I'm prejudiced because I'm not particularly prejudiced. But the woman that she travels with is there. Mrs. Parks was there. And a white guy was there. I knew somebody had to move. (laughs) I was way aware of that. And I have to confess, I had enough sense to know I couldn't move the black woman. I'm not a fool. (laughs) So... So I thought, okay, how am I going to move the white guy? I can do this by either walking over and saying, excuse me, sir, you're sitting next to a legend, and I'd like to have your seat if you don't mind. (laughs) Chances are he would then want to keep it. Or I could do the black thing, and I just walked over and did that. (laughs) Are you going to move or what? And he just looked, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and he got up. You have to know how to use your skills. And I introduced myself to Mrs. Parks, and we actually became friends. And for my Delta Soros here, I need to share this part of the story. As you know, Mrs. Parks moved to, uh, up to Detroit. Congressman uh, Conyers did, moved up to Detroit. And I had the pleasure of going up. She was a tea drinker. I'm a coffee drinker. And we were sitting one day drinking coffee, and she was a good storyteller, too. And we were sitting there just, you know reminiscing, because my age, I'm 72, I reminisce a lot, and at my age, I, I said to her, you know, I said, you know, Ms. Parks, it's, it's amazing. When I think of your life and realize you only made one mistake, it, it, it's amazing. And Mrs. Parks was a very calm woman. As you, Whatever you know about Rosa Parks, you know she was calm. And her face kind of fell, but she was in control of it. And she said, and, and, and what would that be, baby? And I said, you went AKA. <laughs> well, you know, she should have been a Delta. <laughs> now, I know none of the white people in the room know what I'm talking about. <laughs> there are three black sororities, AKA Deltas and, and, and the Zetas. And Mrs. Mrs. Parks was an AKA, unfortunately, but she should have. She should have been a duck, but we laughed about that. I just wanted to share that with my AKA student. I was invited to write a poem doing this. There was a period, there is a period in my life, I think, where I was writing long poems. And I was invited to write a poem about Mrs. Parks. And we're going to end up with a book that's going to be a little bit different. But when they asked me to write the poem, when I was invited, I should say, to write the poem, I realized that everybody knew everything about Mrs. Parks that there was to know. I didn't have anything particular to add that you didn't, I knew that you wasn't tired, I'm not a fool. And I knew, you know, nobody's feet are just tired. You say, I'm gonna start a revolution, my feet are, you know, none of that. And I knew that it was time that we stopped that, that you put a dime in to, to get on the bus 
and then you have to get off the bus and walk down to the back and then walk in and then walk in. And we don't even have to think how many bus drivers drove off thinking that was funny. What would be funny about that is way beside me, but I'm not here to preach tonight. But she was sitting there, and finally she realized, no, she didn't finally. Mrs. Parks was the one who had, had checked off that uh, rape up in, up in Alabama. Mrs. Parks, she did a lot of, she lived next door to the head of the NAACP, Ed Nixon. So there was a lot going on, but Mrs. Parks didn't do it that day. But in being invited to write this, I tried to think of, okay, if, if I'm going to write a poem about Mrs. Parks, where does it start? We were talking to the writers, and this is not going to be interesting, I think, to anybody but the writers in the room. It has to start someplace that people are not looking for it to start so that you can have something to say that people aren't looking for you to say. The person that I'm in love with as a group, of course, the Pullman Porters, and I think the most overlooked group I'm, not a, I'm a history major. I'm a Fisk University graduate and history major. But one of the most overlooked groups of people in America are the Pullman Porters. And we forget that every time Thurgood Marshall needed money, what did he do? He got on a train. Why did he get on a train? Because the Pullman Porters had received money from the blues singers, from the, the, the jazz people, from the people that could give him, but they didn't want to say, Nat King Cole didn't want to say, I'm a member of the NAACP because you couldn't work. Am I making sense? And so he would pass along the money to the Pullman Porters. And when Thurgood or one of his people would get on, they would give that money to them so that the money could go and do what it was supposed to do. So I thought, if I'm going to talk about Mrs. Mrs. Parks, I need to start with the Pullman Porters because these are great men. And it's something that all of us should know because they took the trains away. They got jealous, I think, and said, well, what we'll do, we'll just take the trains away. Ha! And it's a loss because those are great men who looked out for all of us. So this is Mrs. Parks, but this is for the Pullman Porters who organized when people said they couldn't and carried the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender to black Americans in the South so that they would know they were not alone. This is for the Pullman Porters who helped Thurgood Marshall go south and come back north to fight the fight that resulted in Brown versus the Board of Education. Because even though Kansas is west, and even though Topeka is the birthplace of Gwendolyn Brooks, who wrote the powerful The Chicago Defender Sends a Man to Little Rock, it was the Pullman Porters who whispered to the traveling men, both the blues men and the race men, so that they both would know what was going on. This is for the Pullman Porters. Who, knew, who smiled like, as if they were happy and laughed like they were tickled when some folks were around and who silently rejoiced in 1954 when the Supreme Court announced its 5-9-0 decision that separate is inherently unequal. This is for the Pullman Porters who smiled and welcomed a 14-year-old boy onto their train in 1955. They noticed his slight limp that he tried to disguise with a doo-wop walk. They noticed his stutter and probably understood why his mother wanted him out of Chicago during the summer when school was out. Fourteen-year-old black boys with limps and stutters are apt to try to prove themselves in dangerous ways when mothers aren't around to look after them. So this is for the Pullman Porters, who looked over that 14-year-old while the train rolled the reverse of the Blues Highway, from Chicago to St. Louis to Memphis to Mississippi. This is for the men who kept him safe. And if Emmett Till had been able to stay on that train all summer, he would maybe have grown a bit of a punch, certainly lost his hair, probably have worn bifocals and bounced his grandchildren on his knee, telling them about the summer riding the rails. But he had to get off that train and ended up in Money, Mississippi, and was horribly, brutally, inexcusably, and unacceptably murdered. This is for the Pullman porters who, when the sheriff was trying to get the body secretly buried, got Emmett's body on the northbound train, got his body home to Chicago, where his mother said, I want the world to see what they did to my boy. 
And this is for all the mothers who cried. And this is for all the people who said, never again. And this is about Rosa Parks, whose feet were not so tired. It had been, after all, an ordinary day until the bus driver gave her the opportunity to make history. This is about Mrs. Rosa Parks from Tuskegee, Alabama, who was also the field secretary of the NAACP. This is about the moment Rosa Parks shouldered her cross, put her worldly goods aside, and was willing to sacrifice her life so that that young man in money, Mississippi, who was so well protected by the Pullman porters, would not have died in vain. When Mrs. Parks said no, a passionate movement was begun. No longer would there be a reliance on the law. There was a higher law. When Mrs. Parks brought that light of hers to expose the evil of the system, the law came and rested on her shoulders, bringing the heat and light of truth. Others would follow Mrs. Parks. Four young men in Greensboro, North Carolina, would also say no. Great voices would be raised, singing the praises of God and exhorting us to forgive those who trespassed against us. But it was the Pullman Porters who safely got Emmett to his granduncle. And it was Mrs. Rosa Parks who could not stand that death. And in not being able to stand it, she sat back down. It's as if you've been invited to the White House and you know you're going to smile. So you want your teeth to be bright and you brush and brush because you have a partial plate and you are mostly brushing your gums. And quite naturally, since you want to look fabulous and make the First Lady green with envy because you actually have on your only designer suit and a blouse that, if you were honestly, you can't actually afford. But the girl in Saks was so nice and the girl who approved the charge heard the panic in your voice and she, after all, had never been invited to the White House. And what's more, probably never would. So she said, why, yes. I will approve this charge. But do you think you might want to pay us something this month? And you, said, <laughs> and you said, absolutely, because you do want to pay something. <laughs> it's just the food and shelter. <laughs> and so, yes, and just the food and, and, and shelter run up against what you want to pay. And you will, and maybe you can't. But that's what's so hard for people to understand, that distance between want and able, you know? And that's what we want to talk about. So, of course, I remember Lena Horne singing polka dots and moonbeams and my grandmother being totally delighted with RCA Victor TV and her saying to Grandpapa, we better get Nikki up because Lena Horne is on TV. And me not quite knowing who Lena Horne was at that point, though now recognizing that she is a great lady who has fought long and hard for civil rights, who is also a lady of Delta Sigma Theta and who looks so fabulous in the Gap jeans that all the world now wants to be 80 years old and look that good at the Gap. So it was very smart of them to ask to photograph Lena in those jeans. And who was very kind to me when I began my career. And who has remained very kind. But that's not the point of her being on TV when very few black people were on television, whether or not they were very talented. And haven't we come a long way, though quite naturally we have a bit of a way to go. My grandmother, you see, always said, if you earn a dollar, save a dime. And it's not that my grandfather in any way disagreed, but he was more casual about the needing and having. So I'm sure it was grandmother who saved for the RCA Victor TV. And even at that, I have to acknowledge that she was more intrigued with Nipper, that even if he had done nothing more than show the dog responding to its head, I don't know if you ever seen his master's voice, grandmother would have thought she made a good purchase, though the TV also brought us Lena Horn. So grandmother was a believer, and so am I. But that's a bit off point. Only because Billie Holiday, who sang the definitive, I wished on the moon 
for something I never knew. And to hear her sing like that, even though because of dumb, restrictive drug rules that punish some people for drugs, though not others for others, she would never be on TV, which was a total loss of us who wished on the moon while observing strange fruits that traveled light. And we knew that hearing that holiday moan that the moon granted wishes. So I started singing, thinking, If I could throw a note high enough and strong enough, there would be the possibility that it would be heard somewhere in space. And that is what I want to talk about here. Science teaches us that there is no sound in space. And I think that's hogwash. Because if there's no sound in space, how will all those wishes get up to the moon? And anyone with an ounce of sense knows science fiction is much better than science fact because science tries to teach us to prove things. Like Thomas Jefferson wasn't diddling Sally Hemings. And everybody... (laughs) And everybody knows people diddle people all the time, (laughs) especially when they can't say no. So, yes, there is sound in space. And a large part of it says, I love you, in a lot of different ways. And when the language is unknown to the hearer, the other people say things like, that's Gerberish. But love can never be Gerberish. Foolish for sure. Silly, you bet. But the basis of all relationships is love, which is then followed by trust. And not the other way around, because if trust was the basis, there would be peace and, 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 and safe international travel. But what I want to point out, since, I'm always, since it's always so important to do something useful, is that you should quite naturally floss. <laughs> and nickels and dimes have a relationship with dollars and cents, but not halves and quarters. And machines that tell you deposit more money and good luck, when it isn't luck that you need, but better science, which can explain how and why, when all is said and done, we are left with this destiny that forces us to recognize the ego nebula is falling into itself and will one day be a planet, though mostly we will not be around to see it. And then there will be those troublesome black holes, which are so totally fascinating, though no one can exactly put their finger on what makes them so important. And I am here to tell you, I know. The density of a black hole does not prevent life from escaping, but rather, once light encounters the black hole, it finds such beauty and peace and comfort, it no longer needs to search, which is another word for love, and I do. I'm a, I'm a space freak, and you probably have gathered that. But one of the things that we know is that the space program cannot be a science program. Scientists only make real what the creative writers have imagined. We are the ones that say, there ought to be a rocket, and then they say, oh, I can do that. But they would never come to us and say, I want to make something. We're the ones who think it up. I don't care what, it, it was Jules Verne that said, if we are going into space, if we are going to the moon, from Earth to moon, this is where we should go from. And they only missed it by 100 feet, 100 uh, uh, miles. They, they missed what, what Verne said that. They went, but it was a creative writer who said, this is where we have to go. And for those of us in this room who are creative writers, you've got to begin to imagine what is the rest of the universe like. And one of the best ways to imagine that, in all fairness to everybody, is you've got to learn something about black Americans. Because how in the world did we come here with a song, create a dance, do another song, put up with a lot of hatefulness, and still find a way to love, still find a few months ago when some fool shoots nine people in church, being able to come to, to say to him, 
I forgive you. We forgive you. These are great people, and it's time that we embrace that greatness. It really is. So I wrote a poem because I'm, I'm a fan. I want to go to Mars, but oh, for you high school kids, if you're not smoking, don't smoke. My generation, no, I just thought I should mention it because I smoked, and one of the, the, the problems is that I ended up with lung cancer. And it, it is amazing to me, we were talking earlier about it, Brent. It is amazing to me that tobacco, which will kill you, is legal, and marijuana, which will only make you happy, is not. <laughs> I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't. But nobody asked me, but don't smoke for those of you who are in high school, because the reason I can't go into space, well, I can't, I can go to space, but I can't come back because my left lung, because I had cancer, my left lung, I'm lucky to be alive. My left lung was taken out and in coming back, I can go into, into a non-gravity situation, but in coming back, if I come back into gravity, my stomach or my, it, it's no telling my other things will move around in my body. And it'll kill me. So they can't do that. I'm trying to make a deal, by the way. And you all are intelligent. You're college people, most of you. I'm trying to make a deal with NASA. The people in my family, the average age in, in my father's family are all dead. I'm 72. They're all, the Giovannis are all gone. But my mother is a Watson. And the Watsons live a long time. My, aunt, my cousin B lived to be 106. At one point, she was the oldest person on earth. But I'm not going to live to be 106. I don't have any illusion like that. But I figure probably I'll live into my mid-80s. And what I would like for them to do is to send me into space, send me up to, to you know, Mars or someplace. And when I die in 10 years or so, just open the door and let me out. <laughs> well, you know you're going to die anyway. You're born, you're going to die. And then, then the kids can look up and, and you, oh, there goes Nikki, you see? <laughs> I think it would be... I think it would be great. I wrote a poem because I'm a space freak. It's called Quilting the Black Eyed Pea. We're going to Mars. We're going to Mars for the same reason Marco Polo rocketed to China. For the same reason Columbus trimmed his sails on the dream of spices. For the very same reason Shackleton was enchanted with penguins. For the reason we fall in love. It's the only adventure. We're going to Mars because Perry couldn't go to the North Pole without Matthew Henson, because Chicago couldn't be a city without John Baptiste de Savile, because George Washington Carver and his peanut were the right partners for Booker T. It's a life-seeking thing. We're going to Mars because whatever is wrong with us will not get right with us, so we journey forth carrying the same baggage, but every now and then leaving one little bitty thing behind. Maybe torturing hunchbacks here, maybe drop lynching billy buds there, maybe not whipping Uncle Tom to death, maybe resisting global war, one day looking for prejudice to slip, one day looking for hatred to tumble by the wayside, one day maybe the whole community will no longer be vested in who sleeps with whom. Maybe one day the Jewish community will be at rest, the com- Christian community will be content, the Muslim community will be at peace, and all of us will get great meals at holy days and learn new songs and sing in harmony. We're going to Mars because it gives us a reason to change. If Mars came here, it would be ugly. Nations would band together to hunt down and kill Martians, and being the stupid, undeserving life forms that we are, we would, un- uh, we would, we would also hunt down and kill those who would be termed Martian sympathizers. As if the fugitive slave law wasn't bad enough then, as if the so-called war on terrorism isn't pitiful now. 
When do we learn? And what does it take to teach us? Things cannot be what we want, when we want, as we want. Other people have ideas and inputs. And why won't they leave Rap Brown alone? The future is ours to take. We're going to Mars because we have the hardware to do it. We have the rockets and the fuel and the money and the stuff. And the only reason NASA is holding back is they don't know if what they send out will be what they get back. So let me slow this down. Mars is one year of travel to get there, one year of living on Mars, plus one year to return to Earth equals three years of Earthlings being in a tight space, going to an unknown place with an unsure welcome awaiting them. Tired muscles, unknown and unusual foods, harsh conditions, and no known landmarks to keep them human. Only a hope and a prayer that they will be shadowed beneath a benign hand. And there is no historical precedence for that except this. The trip to Mars can only be understood through black Americans, I say. The trip to Mars can only be understood through black Americans. The people who were captured and enslaved immediately recognized the men who chained and whipped them and herded them into ships so tightly packed there was no room to turn, no privacy to respect, no tears to fall without landing on another, were not kind and gentle and concerned for the state of their souls, no. The men with the whips and chains were understood to be killers, feared to be cannibals, known to be sexual predators. The captured knew they were in trouble in an unknown place without communicable abilities with a violent and capricious species, but they could look out and still see signs of home. They could still smell the sweetness in the air. They could smell the clouds. They could see the clouds floating above the land they loved. But they reached a point where the captured could not only not look back, they had no idea which way back might be. There was nothing in the middle of the deep blue water to indicate which way home might be. And it was that moment when a decision had to be made. Do they continue forward with a resolve to see this thing through? Or do they embrace the waters and find another world? In the belly of the ship, a moan was heard, and, that, and someone picked up that moan, and a song was raised, and that song would offer comfort and hope and tell the story. When we go to Mars, it's the same thing. It's middle passage. When the rocket red glares, the astronauts will be able to see themselves pull away from Earth. As the ship goes deeper, they will see a sparkle of blue. And then one day, not only will they not see Earth, they don't, but they won't know which way to look, which is why NASA needs to call black America. They need to ask us, how did you calm your fears? How were you able to decide you were human, even in the face of every, even when everything said you were not? How did you find comfort in the face of the improbable to make the world you came to your world? How was your soul able to look back and wonder? And we will tell them what to do. To successfully go to Mars and back, you will need a song. Take some Billie Holiday for the sad days and some Charlie Parker for the happy ones. But always keep at least one good spiritual for comfort. You will need a slice or two of meatloaf, <laughs> if you can manage it, and some fried chicken in a shoebox with a nice, moist lemon pound cake, a bottle of beer because no one should go that far without a beer, and maybe a six-pack so that if there is life on Mars, you can share. <laughs> Popcorn for the celebration when you land while you wait on your land lace to kick in. And as you climb down the ladder from your spaceship to the Martian surface, look to your left, and there you'll see a smiling community quilting a black-eyed pea watching you descend. <laughs> I'm always uh, falling in love. I recommend it. You're not doing anything, fall in love. It, always, it makes you helpful. And so I'm going to end on a love poem, if I can find it. 
because men are always making decisions about what women. Are any of you all uh, uh, Downton Abbey fans? I love, I love Downton Abbey. I really do. And now that Mr. Carson got married last week, she made him cook. I was, <laughs> I was so happy for her because men are always acting like, you know, women don't do anything. And it's really funny because they say men work and women stay home. But I know better, and so do all of the women who have said, we, we have to clean the house, we have to cook, we have to be nice to them when they come. I mean, it's just, we work very, very hard. This is a poem, though, because it, I'm always falling in love. <laughs> and this is a poem because I was in love with somebody who, unfortunately, uh, at that point wasn't in love with me. And you really hate it when they're not in love with you, because then by the time they fall in love with you, you're in love with somebody else. And, <laughs> you know? It's not a lifetime situation. <laughs> but I thought that, you know, I should let it be known. I'm in love, and I'm going to get a poem out of it, if nothing else. And, it, <laughs> and I did, and I didn't get anything else out of it, but it, <laughs> it was nice to get the poem. It's called Still Life with Apron. I would like to see you cooking. I would like for you to cook for me. I would like to see you decide upon a menu, go to the market and pick the fruit, the vegetables, the fish. I would like to see you smell the fish, test the flesh for firmness and freshness. I would like to watch you in the bakery, in the bakery by the dinner rolls, deciding. Rolls are crusty bread. I would watch you run back to get the goat butter. I would like to be sitting in a corner and you intent upon your meal, not noticing me when you go to the wine store. I would watch you wrestle with red or white. White, of course, because it's fish, but red is seductive. Whoever fell in love over a glass of white wine? <laughs> I, uncharacteristically on time, would like you to greet me in a butcher's apron. I would like to watch you greet me only in an apron. <laughs> you would ask me to undress, to undress for you. Before I sit down at the beautiful table, before you hand me my glass, you would ask me to undress. I would like to watch you watch me undressing for you. I would like to watch the movement inside the apron as I undress for you. I would like to watch you walk, no, run, no, stroll to your closet where you bring out your old buffalo plaid dressing gown, your pilly, much-washed dressing gown that smells like you after you brush your teeth, after you shower, after you comb your hair. I would like to embrace your odor, your odor, your essence as we sit down to eat. I would like for you to cook for me. I would like that very much. So, Nikki, how do you think your poetry has evolved uh, over the years? Uh, You were identified early on with the civil rights uh, movement, and just like the last poem you, you read here, so many of your poems now are love poems. Yeah. So I what, always had love poems, though. Well, and, and that was going to be part of my point, is that even when you were writing kind of as this revolutionary uh, type in the 1960s, there was a lot of love in those poems, but yeah. you also wrote love poems. So how have you evolved uh, in your poetry, in, in your view? What, what's changed over the years? Anything? Well, I'm sure something. I mean, I hope. Um, because quilting the black eyed pea is is older, but I'm definitely a, still a space freak, and I'm doing more with that. I am, as we were sharing, um, 
there has to be another look at slavery. So I'm, I'm going back. I was history major at, at, at Fisk, and I've gone back. I'm not doing, I'm not a historian, but there's some things that we have to look at because I'm tired of the guilt, and I'm tired of white people being guilty, and I'm tired of black people trying to make them. So it's time that I can't change everything, but I, I can at least recognize, you know, white Americans didn't start slavery. You're not going to end it, but you could be nicer, but you didn't start it. So let's find another way to transfer uh, through that. And I don't know anything, though I have a great admiration for Black Lives Matter. I don't know. You didn't hear any poems. I only read the three or four poems here. You didn't hear me read any poems, nor will you, on Black Lives Matter, because that's your generation. So I'm not going to try to comment on what your generation is doing because I can only comment on mine. And I'm still upset with the president that he hasn't pardoned Rap Brown. And uh, there are still times that, yeah, <laughs> thank you. There's, there are still things that I will say, and probably none of you, you're like, who's Rap Brown? But when we look at the civil rights movement, you know, Stokely's gone, as you know. And so he doesn't, he's not there to be pardoned. But it'd be really nice if, if, if Obama had had, like, we're having, Stokely Carmichael Day and, 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 and had, you know, some corned beef or whatever it is that you do. Because these are the people that made it possible. And, of course, Rap is still in jail, and uh, it's my understanding that Rap has cancer. So we need to get him out, and we need to get his treatment, and need to take care of, you know, because where would we be? King was murdered. So where would we be without these people, and when are we going to honor them? When are we going to say, yes, we appreciate what you, what you did for the country? And I... Well, I, I wrote a line, and in, in, uh, actually, I like the poem a lot, as, as a matter of fact. I've been working on it, and I still, it still has worked. But one of the lines says, we, sh- we hang our heads in shame at the timidity of Barack Obama. And if I don't do anything else, I'm keeping that line in. I may admit, because Barack needed to do something. You know, you were elected president however many years ago. Then what the hell? You president, do something. It's a different topic here. Um, (laughs) Nice segue, I know. Was it, how big of a kick was it to be mentioned in a Kanye West song? Oh, it was, see, I know that Kanye's mother was a friend, Kanye's mother was, was I know Kanye's mother said to him, you know, Kanye, you didn't mention Nikki. You better get Nikki in that, I mean, I'm sure, (laughs) I'm sure Kanye didn't care one way or the other, but that was really, uh, that, that, that was really a kick. That had to be. Do you remember what the line is? I've, I've had a seizure. I don't remember a lot of things. I have a letter because I didn't know. I don't know Afeni uh, Shakur Tupac's, mm-hmm. and I have a. Yeah, let, let's let's get in a, on uh, let's get in on her uh, on her tattoo. <laughs> uh, my there. thug life because when, you know it. he died. You know he was shot on a. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted. It was just one of those, I was lucky. It was a lucky thing. He was shot on like a Monday. He died on that Friday. And that Saturday, my mother was still with us. And that, that Saturday, I said to mommy, I'm going to go get a, a, a tattoo because I only have one. And she said, uh, what? Because <laughs> my mother's a conservative Delta. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to have it run down. Yeah, that, that would have yeah, been a really good idea. I was going to run thug life down my face. And she literally... No, I can't say this is Catholic. This is a, a, a Christian school. But she did what you do in your pants. And <laughs> she, she was like, no. And so I was like, okay. And then I decided to put it on my, and I did it. Now, I don't really know 
how the New York Times, I don't ever know how the New York Times finds out about anything, but the New York Times understood that I had a, 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 a tattoo, and they sent a photographer and asked, could they, could they take the tattoo? And I said, yes, because I, you know, I, fin- I, mean, I have a son, and I would want somebody to, to be sad if, if, if my son had gotten killed. And so the, the Times put it in, and that's why I got on the web and stuff. And I got a letter from a Finney, and I, I, have, I framed that. And it was just a sweet letter, said, Dear Sister, because I like to think that Afeni was my, she was my sister too. And we're just talking about, you have to let people know when you care. You, you do, and, and you can write a little note, you can do a postcard, you can do whatever it is, but you have to let people know that you care, because that's a big, I, I, I can't imagine burying my child. I don't, I, I just don't even want to. it's just not something I can imagine so anybody that loses a child it's a very difficult thing no matter who and some people say well he did this this and this he was a great man Tupac was a great man and he would he was he would stand on that stage and say vote or die vote or die and I think that people were upset that he was trying to make sure that youngsters like these high school students in here when you're old enough that you go to register you have to vote you must vote and uh, it's, it's very important and Tupac was leading that so losing Pac was a great loss. You know, uh, Michael Eric Dyson, when he was here, said he was sort of the Charles Dickens of his generation because of the way he would describe his surroundings. Yeah. Can, can you see that? You know, <laughs> yeah. oh, I, I know what I know about Dyson. I, yeah, good for him. Yeah. <laughs> this wasn't about Dyson. This was about Tupac. <laughs> All right. So, but the Kanye thing, it was kind of a kick? It was, well, it was wonderful. Anytime, you know, you pick up a book, I, I just, my son, I don't do, I'm the only person at Virginia Tech that doesn't do email. And I know they have me listed, but I don't, I don't email. And uh, actually, my office is the only office that doesn't have that thing. What is it? Wi-Fi? Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> that thing? It, we don't have that thing? Yeah. Is that what you, you said? Yeah, whatever it is. You can't come to my office... And do that thing. You have to go someplace else. My son's name is Thomas. And Thomas sent Jenny, because Jenny's the one who does that thing. And Thomas sent Jenny a um, website thing. And the person who had done it had said, because her boyfriend uh, had cancer. And so the person that had done it had said, she remembered before he had cancer that whoever he was, and I would sit and read Nikki Giovanni. So Thomas thought that I would get a kick out of it, and he sent it to, uh, to Jen. And I was really glad, but if Thomas hadn't sent it, I wouldn't have known it, because I, I don't do that. All right. Well, here, here, here's the line. Can't you see you're like a book of poetry, Maya Angelou, Nikki Giovanni, turn our page, and there's my mommy. There you go. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. But, all right, so what's a bigger kick? A, uh, a, a shout-out from Kanye, or you have a species of bat named uh-huh. after you. So there's a story. But I've got all these stories, because I'm old. Yeah, it... <laughs> but, no, you have to admit that. When this happened, Tony uh, Morrison. Oh, yeah, yeah, Tony. I'm sorry. Yeah, she does this. She does this. I... Nina Simone. Nina Simone. <laughs> Maya Angelou. But I grew up with these people. But Tony won the Nobel. And frankly speaking, I, among others, could not have been happier. And again, we're always dealing with the New York Times and Washington Post. So this was the Washington Post. And they called me to comment on 
Tonis Nobel, which was way right because she's one of the most brilliant writers in America. She and Edwidge Danikin are probably the best writers in America. And so I said, because, you know, it was fun to me, I said, I'm so proud of her, and I am, and I love Tony, I don't have a problem. I said, but you know, in all fairness to everybody, a lot of people have a Nobel. A lot of writers and other scientists have a Nobel. Seriously, you said that? I did. (laughs) But I have a bat named after me. <laughs> I, I am the only one. The bat is in Chile. I am the only one with the bat, so I'm happy for Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, it's, it's a Washington Post, so there's this thing, and there's Tony, and there's me, and I got my bat. So I... <laughs> I'm pleased. Uh, Dr. King at the University of Texas found this bat, and he was a fan, and so he wrote and said, you know, would you mind if I had big ears, is what he said, and it reminded so I have a bat. So, you know, I don't care about the other thing. The only thing I really want, and I don't mind admitting that, is I have seven NAACP Image Awards, and I want eight. I want one more. <laughs> Everybody's talking about, oh, I want to, uh, what is that? Everybody's, oh, those people are uh, boycotting the uh, Oscars and stuff. Yeah. I don't care about any of that. I want my eighth NAACP so that, you know, it balances. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's, yeah. That's, seven is so awkward. So, seven yeah. is awkward. Yeah. So I'm hoping that this is going to be a good enough book that I can get my eighth, and then I can quit writing. I can just sit around and say, hey, look at what I did. You yeah. know what I'm saying? <laughs> You, let's talk about poetry for a minute. So you have said poems have work to do. What is that work? I think inform. I think I try to help people to think about things differently. But I also think delight. I think that delight is, is key to almost everything that people would be able to read and say, oh, you know. And sometimes they smile, sometimes they, they won't. But I think that we have to inform and, 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 and delight and, and leave something with the person that they will take. But you know, and some of you do, Brandon, there, we, we know that I'm thinking about suing the president. And <laughs> I'm not picking on Barack today, but I am thinking about suing him because... You sort of are. <laughs> you, you sort of are picking on him. Yeah, because I had a line in, when, when the Virginia Tech tragedy occurred, my last lines were, we will prevail. And a couple of weeks ago, because of the situation in Syria, Obama said, we will prevail. So I expected him to say, as the poet Nikki Giovanni said. <laughs> I did, or as the Virginia Tech professors. And give me some damn, give me some credit for what I... <laughs> and but so he just said it like he thought of it himself. The nerve. I want credit for what I've done, so I'm thinking about suing him. Yeah, yeah. My son is a lawyer. If he doesn't have anything else to do, I might have him take care of it. L- yeah, let, let us know how it turns out. Well, you know I was going to turn out. <laughs> well, uh, all right, so I've, I've read a lot of your poetry, and, and a lot of it doesn't have any punctuation in it whatsoever. Yeah. That's got to be intentional. So I'm wondering why, but I'm also wondering, is that so that whoever is reading it can read it however... He or she wants to read it with whatever cadence and whatever pauses. Or sometimes it just sounds like you are just emptying your skull of whatever this idea is, and you don't want to. You don't want to even stop and mess with punctuation. No, it, it's. I think that uh, at least my poetry works on the breath, and I'm just. I have a common breath. Um, now, of course, I. I have a. a 
I only have one lung, so that might affect my intake. And, you know, the stupidest thing on television is that one where the, the grandfather's sitting there with the two little girls, and, and they say, you know, and the wolf huffed and the puffed, and the little girl, like you do, grandpapa. And, I, you know, you just, don't you just want to reach in and just slap the crap out of her? <laughs> You really do. You, you really do. But it's, it's on a breath. And so it's there. It's like a song. You know, we were talking about, some, I've been talking to some songwriters here. And the songwriters will sing a song a certain way. But then the song, somebody else will come along and sing that same song a different way and get something really wonderful. And I think poetry is like that. So the poetry is available if anybody's kind enough to read it. It's available to be read as they understand it. So you really give the reader a lot of freedom. Well, my friend says that I assume intelligence. And so I like to think that I, <laughs> I like to think that I do, that uh, okay. I think that nobody, dumb people don't pick me up. I can guarantee you that. Donald Trump is not going to quote me. <laughs> That's true. No. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Pope Francis, too. I was so proud of him. We build bridges. And I'm a poet. We build bridges. We find ways to come together. And Pope didn't say, by the way, Donald Trump. He just said people who build walls when we should be building bridges. I couldn't agree more. I'm, uh, I was want very to meet poetic. Is... Well, he, he's smart. He's yeah. a nice man. And I really, uh, I wanted, I did a thing with Tony Morrison when... <laughs> When, there when, we go again. No, but when, when Maya Angelou was alive, uh, her son Slade died, and we wanted to do something to embrace her because it said there's nothing worse than losing a son. And so we decided to have this celebration, and we just invited everybody, everybody who was anybody in the art world came. We had, we had over a million dollars on stage, and that's the truth. And what I really had wanted, I haven't gotten that yet, but I want, I want a note. Uh, Tony's Catholic. I wanted a note from Pope Francis to say that he regretted it. And if I were more well, I would have flown to where he was. I would have flown to Rome. I would have flown to Syria, wherever he was. And I would have gotten it because I'm persistent. But I'm not well enough to be able to run around the world like, like I used to be able to do. But I really still want to get a note from Pope Francis for, for Tony. And I, I just want to run into, and I will sometimes, you know, when I'm, I'm getting back on my feet because I've, I've had a hard year. But I really, it would just please me to be able to take that to Tony. She's a good friend and I love her. And it's just something that I think would be so wonderful to be able to give her. Yeah, no you kidding. Know. You know, I've, I've, in all the poetry of yours that I've been reading, I, I tried to come up with what are some of the main things you write about. We've got these topics, love, obviously, food, sports, politics, family, strong women, and skepticism about men. <laughs> Is that a pretty accurate list? It sounds good to me. But they, and, and then your poems usually have this kind of twist at the end. There's, there's a surprise. There's an aha at the end. Like a poem about meatloaf. That wasn't about meatloaf. That was about grief. You know? And, and it, so you're doing obviously more than writing about sports and writing about meatloaf and writing about these other things, right? I hope. Is it conscious or unconscious? Well, I'm relatively intelligent. So 
I assume intelligence. And so when I'm writing, I'm putting things in that intelligent people can. I say, very few dumb people quote me. Right. <laughs> I don't know how else to say that. That's no, terrible, that's, isn't it? No, that's good. People are going to just walk out. Well, who is she doing? But <laughs> no, I, it's there. And, you know, you're trying to, for the writers in the room, you're trying to tell your story as you see it. And you hope other people see it. I present my story as I see it, and I present it in love. If this was a meeting of the clan, if all of you were clans, I'm serious, if all of you had come in here with, I would have read the same poems. Because that's all I know how to do. You know, but then I come from Nat King Cole, who stood on the stage in Alabama when they attacked him for singing, I love you for sentimental reasons. If Nat can do that, I can read those poems. All right. Uh, early on, your first couple of books, you self-published. Mm-hmm. This was back when self-publishing was not very easy. And... Uh, could, and there was a problem, I assume, with finding someone who was interested? Oh, in just money. Just money. I tell you, you stand on any corner and get money, so you just have to decide what corner. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but the, the, what, I, what I was marveling at was they did really well. These self-published books did well enough that then a publisher finally came to you and said, I think, I think we may want to... Well, it was Black some... Judgment. Black Feeling, Black Talk did okay. And that was just a question of... You know, hitting a couple of people, $25 here or there, whatever you're doing. And people know me, and I don't, I don't cheat, and if I can pay you back, I will, and I paid everybody back. But Black Judgment uh, was a special book to me. One, I really liked it, and I'm a good friend of Rap Brown's. I knew Karenga, and I knew them, and I wanted something special. And I was very fortunate. My mother's a jazz fan, and I wanted to have a, a, a book party at Birdland. And, uh, of course, Birdland was run by Harold Logan, and... Uh, 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 what's his name? Not Pickett, the other one. And, uh, you know, a bunch of Wilson. crooks. And so uh, I just went and asked him, because I'm not afraid of crooks anymore. I'm afraid of good people, I guess. And so I asked Mr. Logan, could I have Birdland on a Sunday, you know? And he, we were trying to figure out what I needed to do to make that happen. And so he finally said, okay, bring me 100 people. And you can have the club. Ninety-nine people, you owe me $500, which Mr. Logan knew I didn't have $500. Ultimately, unfortunately, Mr. Logan was a, th- uh, a, a crook, and he was shot down on, on Broadway. And I was very sad about that because I enjoyed working with him, you know. But what I did was all-night radio. I just started to do all-night radio. And I'll never forget WWRL because when I first went to WWRL, they were not doing poetry. And it was like, well, first of all, I was young, so I was cute. And it was like, please, you know, and... Being cute helps and smiling helps, and we got that done. But what we ended up with was a a tremendous group, and it was great, because Birdland is down. And New York Times is, Birdland is, if I'm Birdland, you're the New York Times. And what they saw was a a bunch of (laughs) black people, and they were here, and then they turned. So they sent a reporter down to say, you know, what are all these black people doing? And the answer was, black judgment is coming. And so you can, you can see, they were like, what, what is going on, you know? <laughs> and, and we had it, and uh, I got the second news front from that. Morgan Freeman would, uh, was my next-door neighbor at that point. But we had some really good readers, and we got that done. And I, the second news front is going to make any career. If you can't make your career after second news front in the New York Times, you need to go do something else. And so I had that second news front, and so people knew who I was, and then they would pay me to come and speak. 
because okay. other than that, I pretty much had been speaking for free, but it was nice to have uh, a job that paid because I had, you know, what you call it, rent and stuff. <laughs> you know, the, the, the subject of race was a, a big issue when you were writing early on, and it obviously is today. And, um, and I was looking at the interview that you did with James Baldwin, 1973, maybe, 1972. And here's a quote from, uh, from, from James Baldwin in the interview you did with him. He uh, is speaking uh, about a white police officer. Okay? He says, Baldwin says, he may be a very nice man, but I haven't got the time to figure that out. All I know is he's got a uniform and a gun, and I have to relate to him that way. That's the only way to relate to him, because one of us may have to die. I read that quote from 1973, and I thought about today, and I just think, has nothing changed? Do you think I I can't think like that? If I thought like that, I'd be unhappy. But I need to share this. I don't know if you all know John Oliver Killens. He wrote And Then We Heard the Thunder, which is about World War II. And he wrote a wonderful book called The Cotillion. And the heroine in the cotillion is a girl named Yoruba. And John based Yoruba on me. This is the 100th, because she's feisty girl. This is the 100th anniversary of John, and they're having, in Brooklyn, they're having a celebration. And so they called me and said, Nick, we're having a celebration of John. Will you write something? And I share this because probably most of you won't have any, any particular reason to see it. I was thrilled, because I said, if John were here today... He and I would make our way to London, where we would meet, because Jimmy lived in, in Port de Vance, he lived in France, where we would meet Jimmy Baldwin, and we would picket Downton Abbey. <laughs> Why? Because the fifth singers went to sing before Queen Victoria, and we should have had that in that, that series. And we should have invited the family, including the Dowinger, to come and hear the fifth singers who are going to change their name to the Jubilee Singers. And I thought it was a way to get it in. So you're asking about did things change? Something's changed because I could write that. Well, do you, do you think we have, as, do you think as poets, do you think poets have an obligation to write into the dynamic of Ferguson, or Baltimore, or Chicago, or Minneapolis. Is that, is that an obligation of the poet? I don't think it's an obligation. I think it's something you might be interested in. But right now, what my kids are, what we are interested in, we are Virginia Tech. What we are interested in is Dr. Edwards is the one who broke open Flint, Michigan. And I'm really hoping to be able to get, we're afraid right now because the same reason your school wouldn't want to send you someplace like that, the water's poison, and we don't want to make a mistake, the kids wash their hands, put it in their mouth, they'd be sick, we don't want that. But I would love to take, I'd love to take a bus load, but I'll sell it for a van load. I want my kids to be able to go up because that's a big story. The, the, what's going on, that's, that's the next movie. I don't know what Spike Lee and them are doing. They're running around picketing one thing or another. I don't know what, uh, what's her name, uh, What's the girl, Jada? I don't, I don't know. But that's, that's where we need to be looking at something because that's an incredibly important story because water, it's just an incredible, it, and, and these are good people on two sides. We are Virginia Tech, and so my students can and will interview Dr. Edwards and his graduate students. So we're very fortunate that it's a Virginia Tech thing that we can do that. But as I say, I want them, so I'm not ignoring 
I mean, I've got 14-year-old boys and, and, and things that I write, and it's 14. I'm not ignoring that, but I'm saying, you, you asked me what, what was important. If I were a writer right now, Flint, because Flint is not the only place in America that has poison water, and I know Southeast, uh, uh, Southeast Washington did, there are other places, and we need to look at that. And so if I were you all's age, that would be what I'm more looking at, because we know policemen shouldn't have guns. If they can't conduct their, and I said that to my students, if I had to come in here and have to have something to control you, something, if I had to come in here with a whip or, or, or with a, I don't know what teachers would have, a, a paddle, then, you know, you read about that, and I'm going to paddle you. If I have to do that, then I shouldn't be teaching you. If my voice doesn't control you, something's wrong with one of us. <laughs> That's the truth. You know, you've mentioned Virginia Tech a couple of times. You were asked to write this poem oh, yeah. after this very, very tragic it was. slaughter yeah. at, uh, at your school. And, and I know you don't want to uh, recite the poem, but what is it about poetry that speaks into that deep, deep grief? I, I just know personally, if, if I'm grieving about something, I turn to poetry. I'm glad. So, so I, but what is it about poetry? I There's wish some... I knew. I knew when I received that call, and I, I took an obligation. I, I got a call from, from uh, uh, Sandy, actually. I was trying to remember who had actually called me, because it was the dean who wanted it, but it was Sandy Smith, who was the president's secretary, called me. And she said, Nikki, we need you to uh, anchor uh, convocation. And the only answer to that was yes. But I was so upset, I knew Mr. Cho, I had put him out of my class. I, I knew Mr. Lee, and, and I have to be careful because I'll start crying about them. I and just, I knew some of the kids that were killed, and I knew that I couldn't count on. I, I normally can do what I'm doing with you. I can sit and I can talk. I'm comfortable. But I knew that I couldn't count on myself, and that's why I had to. That's why I had to write it. But you know, that's a political poem too, because I'm talking also about about the, the kids who are, are being slaughtered. You know, I did some other things. And I didn't realize when they said anchor that they meant that because George Bush, uh, you know, the president was, was coming. And the dean, our dean, uh, Mark, was afraid that I would say something cruel. And I, I've never been so angry with Mark because I know the difference between where we are. I mean, if I had a chance to curse Bush out, I'd be delighted. But this was not the, well, but this was not the time to deal with it. To me, he was just another boy who was there doing stupid things. And we had to do it. I didn't know that I was going to be the last voice. And cause other people did other things and other things. And so then it was me. And it was just, it was just so incredibly, incredibly sad. And it was a kid. And I, I won't, I'll go to my grave not knowing who. Yeah. Because I was sitting, for example, here. And a kid over there is the one that said, let's go Hokies. And we all, I mean, yeah. that's, that's what did it. That's what did it. It was, it was just so powerful. I mean, I've watched it. Uh, I've watched it on YouTube. And, and it's just such a powerful thing because, I, it, and it's so different from if you would have read an essay, if you would have read a letter, uh, you know, anything like that. It's a, it's a poem. Yeah. You, you read poems when you get married. You get, read poems when you die. You read poems when, when, when there's a celebration. You read po- poems. Do things. You know, poems are right there with good wine and, and caviar. Well, uh, yeah, I love caviar. <laughs> I know. I've been trying to break myself with a habit because you feel so guilty because you say I did at one point. So for a couple of months, I did because you say there is some mother 
and these are some mother's children. <laughs> and you're sitting there enjoying it, and then you say to hell with that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've, you've, uh, I love the, it was a very small book that you had on spirituals. And, and it, had, it had history, it had the lyrics, um, and, and your ability, the way you articulated the music we enjoy today, Thank you. starting from the moans in the holds of the slave ships. That's right. So take us through the trajectory. So from, from those moans to from the that spirituals. Tenth day, well, it's a longer story, but from that 10th day, we know that everybody on, every white person on that ship is going to be armed because the 10th day that the slaves come up, or they're not the slaves at this point, but the captured, they're going to look around. There's nothing they understand, so they're going to fight. This is going to be, the ship's captains tell us this. There's going to be a big fight, and they're going to lose. So when they're put back down, and I'm a big fan of black women. I just think that black women are the best things that ever happened to the world. And I do. And I think that it had to be a black woman because I can't see anybody else that can embrace it. And she had to know my people need something. But we forget that those people didn't speak the same language. They're coming from a variety of different places. They're coming from different cultures, from different gods. They, so she had to find something that could talk to all of them. And that's going to be, and somebody's going to answer her, and they're going to take that moan and bring it all the way to the United States. Because you have to remember still, they're not speaking the same language. That we have names, you know, I'm, Nikki is a nickname, but it's now my name. I was born Yolanda. Brandon has a name. But if we had gone, you wouldn't. You, you understand what I'm saying? So we had to accept names. We had to accept, I'm not picking on you, Brandon, I'm sorry. We had to accept names. We had a lot that we had to learn. And I think, again, one of the great things that we did, and, and I, I, I did resent, and I, I still do, all of the people that stand around, we had to learn to love a man who lay on a cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it has become the cry of black Americans. It's one of the greatest things that has happened to black Americans is that we too learn that the pains that we have suffered, we have to ask for forgiveness for the people who have made them suffer because the forgiveness is not really for them, it's for us. And once we can learn to forgive them, we can move forward into another new world. It's a great thing to be black and I recommend it. (laughs) I do. But but the, the, the connections you made, though, we go from the moans to the spirituals. To jazz, to we, blues. To... We've been on stage. I, I was laughing about it because I'm at a school where we're, we're a football power. You know, uh, Frank Beamer, who is a friend and whom I love dearly. But Frank is the winningest football coach in undergraduate. You know that. Mm-hmm. Our young men, particularly have been on a stage all of their lives because we're, we're recruiting people. We're looking at them. They're in the eighth grade. They're 15 years old. They're 16 years old. These people have been, and people are saying, how can you be on a stage? How can you be on a stage all of your life? We've been on stage <laughs> forever. We were on a stage in Africa when they were selling us. We were on a stage in America where they sold us again. We've been on a stage where we sing. We've been on a stage. If there's any one thing that any black person that you know can do, they can be on a stage. Because there's something in your, your, people said to me, you're comfortable on a stage. I said, hell, I've been on a stage before I was born. I was on a stage. 
We have all been on stages. So the question is, how do you make that stage work Mm -hmm. for you? Mm -hmm. How do you use it so that you're happy, so that you're comfortable, so that you're loved? But you can't be black and not have been on a stage because there was never a time that you weren't. That if you knew your grandparents, if you knew your great-grandparents, or when you know your history, we've been on, we, we have lived on stages. It's been an auction block. It's been some things that made us unhappy. But yet we've been on that stage and we have used it to the best of our ability, to, to our ability to make it work for us. We have been good people with it and good for us. Good for you. What about the, I want to go back to the spiritual. Do you, do you have a favorite? Maybe. Uh, it's hard because I like so many, but, you know, sometimes I feel like a motherless child is one of mine. Because that's, uh, you know, if you're having a really bad day. And I think there must be nothing. I, I'm talking about mothers losing children, but a childless mother can, is difficult, but a motherless child has got to be unbelievable. And so I really, sometimes, I, you know, I really do. You want to sing it? I, no, I don't, I don't want to. Uh, I saw, I, uh, what's his name? Uh, Barack was singing. Uh, uh, he did Amazing Grace. He did Amazing Grace. I get sick of people singing that song. John Newton wrote that song, and he was a slaver. And what he was singing about was what he had done. I want somebody to sing about what helped me. Is that, that no. I don't have to always be nice, do I? I <laughs> I, I, no, really, I just, you know, because Amazing Grace was about this man who realized I have messed up. And if I were anyplace else, I would use another word. And, <laughs> you know, and, and we're supposed to accept. And so I, I was disappointed. Uh, and she doesn't call me and ask me what she should sing. Believe me, she'll take my calls, but we're not that close. But I was very disappointed that Aretha sang that Amazing Grace because I, I wanted her to sing a spiritual that came out of what we had gone through and what, what, what lifted us up. Amazing Grace saved John. It, it, it forgave John. And I'm glad for John. I, I hope that they all go to heaven or whatever. But they're, they're just such, there's so many lovely, so many songs that my grandmother would sing. And we had a washer. You see, it, it was a long time. She had to save up a long time. I wasn't able to do for my grandmother what I was able to do for my mother. So she had a washer. If you can imagine washing a sheet and our stringing Ringing and then the taking wire. it yeah. and hanging it out on, right? So you're going to hum a spiritual when you're doing that. Hmm. You are. And I just thought we could have found a better song that was a little closer to, to my heart. You have said that you can write things now that your mother is gone. Mm-hmm. Like what? Why couldn't you write well, it when she was I did. Home? When mommy died, uh, the first thing I did, uh, <laughs> Gloria's my attorney, and I, I'd be lost without Gloria. You know that we've talked about Gloria. The first thing I did was I legally changed my name because I'm Yolanda Cornelia Giovanni Jr. by birth, and I would never have changed it when mommy was here. But when she left, I changed it to Nikki so that I am officially uh, uh, Nikki Giovanni. You know, so that was the one thing that, that I did. And I've, I've gotten to rethink my father because my father had issues. And it was none of my business. He was married to her. He wasn't married to me. And so I needed to put it aside because mm-hmm. it was none of my business. And now that he's gone, I need to, and I am, I don't know if I need to, for me I need to, rethink some of the things I saw. Because I've said, and I've, said, I've learned to say it on stage, that if you ask me what was I doing at 11 o'clock on any Saturday night, I was listening to my father hit my mother. And uh, 
it's something that I just had to put back because there's nothing I could do about it. And now that she's sitting in heaven, I can sit there and say, and that disturbed me. And so now I can begin to explore, because I'm a writer, I can begin to explore what does that mean and what did he get out of it and why would he, why would that happen? I mean, I just, so I don't pick on men, but you have to wonder about how, how did that happen. But I wrote a poem said, I married my mother, but she whittled me. Hmm. <laughs> because when she died, she did. She whittled me. So I'm trying to figure out, and I did pretty much. If I have married anybody, and I may yet do it again, I married my mother. Because that's what you marry the people that you love, mm-hmm. that you're close to, that you take as marriage. Yeah. Because right? you, you have sex with them. If you, if, you had, if you married everybody you had sex with, your marriage license would look like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, that's true of some people. Not everyone. No, I'm sure not. Not us here, but... Yeah. Maybe how they do it in Virginia, or I don't know. Sex is a good idea, and I'm tired of people making... It's really funny about sex, because we want... Oh, boy. No, no. Just a brief. We want our women to be virgins, but we want our men to be cockhounds. So what 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 am I missing? We do. Everybody wants your women to be, oh, she a virgin? Oh, man, I hope you don't want to hit that. Well, somebody has to hit something. <laughs> what? <laughs> women. <laughs> no, women don't ask the same question. We, you're lucky. We don't ask, you know, and what have you been doing? Not you, because I'm sure you haven't been doing No, that. no. I, I, I was just... I was just assuming that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> hey, I just, thought, I just thought of something. Tell us about you getting a ticket from a cop. <laughs> well, that had nothing to do with sex, of course. I, <laughs> I am trying to change the subject, if that's all right. Oh. Well, I don't have to tell that then. You can, you can change the subject. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about getting that ticket. No, I live in, 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 in Blacksburg. I teach in Blacksburg. And Maya, Angela, was, <laughs> Maya was in uh, Wake Forest. And so driving down to Maya is like a two-hour drive. But I speed. I have an SUV. And it's true, I do speed. And so I go down. And when you turn, when you make that turn off of 81, then I'm usually getting a, a, a ticket. So I've gotten a lot of tickets. I had had a lot of tickets. And a, a, a policeman gave me a ticket, and, and it's sad, by the way. I was not, I mean, I was sad about it. He gave me a ticket and went home, and I guess said it to his mother. I don't, I don't know what people say to his mother, but he said to his mother, you know, I gave this funny black woman with a funny name. And she said, Nikki Giovanni, you gave Nikki Giovanni a ticket. So he was feeling guilty about that, but he was helping out at a, um, like a parking thing, like a carnival or something. And he got hit. And he got killed. And, yeah, I'm very sad. And his mother wrote me and said who she was and what had happened to her son. And, of course, I wrote her back and said how how sorry I was. I was going down to see Maya another time because I I went down a lot because she didn't, you know, she had quit driving and stuff. And I was going down and I got stopped. I don't know why. I think they must sit there or something. And I got stopped. And, you know... If a policeman stops you for everybody who drives, all of you young men in the, in the crowd particularly, there's nothing to do but put your hands on the wheel and 
wait and do what he tells you to do and take the ticket because you can always get another. You can pay for the ticket. You can't pay for another son. And so I had my hands on a wheel. He was giving me a ticket and how they always have. And I have a tendency not to have my seatbelt on. So these things like, oh, why don't you have your seatbelt on? And there's nothing to say, you know, because my answer would be something that wouldn't be smart. So it was like, and he gave, he was writing up my ticket. He was getting ready to write up my ticket. And I said, sir, this is true. I don't mind the ticket. But I think I need to tell you that the last officer here... <laughs> it was only fair. <laughs> no, I, I thought he should know, you know, the last officer got hit by another car and died. And I just think you should know. But I, I have no problem with you giving me this ticket. And I don't know what he thought. He probably thought I looked like a voodoo woman or something. But <laughs> he said, well, go on and don't speed anymore. And I said, yes, sir. So I didn't get a ticket that day. You have to tell him. <laughs> no. I thought he should know. Yeah. Was... You know, you, you said something uh, that when you were growing up, that you had a secret hope that someday you would be understood. <laughs> I probably still do. Well, that, I was wondering, is that, is that one of the reasons why we write? I think probably any writer in this room would tell you that, I don't know if it's secret or not, but that's the hope. And... The chances of that happening are incredibly slim because the older you get, the more you're going to know, and the more you're going to know, the more you're going to bring to bear other things. So you're never going to be understood. Maybe I should have said, well, I am loved, so I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't feel unloved. I, I, people love me. Some people love me. You know, I don't think everybody does or should or can or any of that, but I think some people do, and the people that do, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with. And speaking of love... I'd like to share one other thing because I teach at Virginia Tech and I've been there for 27 years and every writer hopes that they can teach a writer who goes on and does things. And when I was in the hospital, which was the sweetest thing in the world, Kwame Alexander, whom you should know, Kwame, I I opened my, he was one of the people and I opened my eyes and Kwame was there and I said, what are you doing there? He said, you're sick. I don't know where he, it's incredible. I, I really, he is my literary son. I really love him so much. And he said, Nikki, can you understand me? And I said, yes, as far as I, yes. He said, I won the Newberry Prize. I wanted you to know I won the Newberry, which he had won every right. I was so, I'm laying in the hospital with this seizure, but I got that through my head. My student had won the Newberry, so I have done something right. And it really did just make me feel so Good. Yeah. And I know that some of us in this room are going to be writers. And when you do what you do, be sure to let the people that you love know that you love them. Uh, So I'm I'm so thrilled for Kwame. First of all, it was a really, really, really good book. But I was so thrilled that I could teach a writer who could learn whatever it is I had. Because you can see learning from me is not (laughs) life's easy thing. But Kwame has taken, I think, the best of me. And so he's very comfortable. And the only piece of advice we were laughing about, the only piece of advice I ever gave Kwame, and I give this to all of you because you're here in San Diego. If you go to Hong Kong or Singapore, go first class. (laughs) That's just good advice. You do not want to go. No, go first class. No matter what you have to do, charge it, lie about it, whatever you do, go first class. And... (laughs) 
Kwame was invited to Singapore when he told me he was going to Singapore, because we came out here, San Diego, San Francisco has the Newberry. And he said, Nick, I'm going to, I'm going to Singapore. And he was taking his wife and kid. And I said, that's, he has a little daughter. I said, Kwame, this is my advice. <laughs> Go first class. <laughs> and his daughter is five, so she now knows business class. They were going someplace else recently. She said, daddy's going business class. <laughs> I said, that child is too young to know business class. <laughs> Do you, do you think with, um, with the deaths that have occurred around you in recent years and your own, the loss of a lung, are you, are, do you write differently with, out of that kind of, um, it's a pretty sobering thing to live through what you've lived through in the last few years. Yeah. Are, are you writing differently, a little more seriously maybe? I've always been serious. I'm not an unserious person. But I think... Um, I think I've grown, and um, I think, if anything, I'm probably less serious. I, I find humor in things that I, I used to not. And, uh, you know, Mommy and, and my sister and my aunt and my dog all went in, in Just a, an incredibly about six short months. period of time. And you had things to do, and so I, I did them. And I was sharing with the other group. I, I, I have not learn to cry. I've learned, I've been learning to cry. And it's been the most uh, interesting thing to me because now little things will happen and it'll be like, oh no. And I was reading a poem about quilts because that was for Sally. And that's a sad poem. And I didn't really, I mean, it caught me up. Um, there, there are things that happen now. I think I'm not holding myself in. So even though we were talking earlier, even though I like all black Americans to some degree have been on stage all of my life. I don't think that I'm, no, not my life. That was, that was a fight that I had. I let Jenny read that poem, which I shouldn't have. And she thought it should be life. It is existence. All of my existence, I've been on a stage. And I've learned to let it go. I've learned to let some of the hurt go. And I don't know what it does. I mean, my writing, I think, is I'm a serious writer, and I I think I'm relatively intelligent, but I've let some of the emotion. I'm not holding it in in the same way. But you hold things in in your 20s in a way that you don't in your 70s, because you say to yourself, well, if I don't let it out in the 70s, when when am I I planning to let it out, you know? And so I'm learning to cry, and that's what the new book is called, A Good Cry. I'm I'm learning to cry. So does the writing help you through that? Well... I don't know, but I called, I hate to say it, I was in a, a really bad way, I called Tony, because I was just feeling so bad, and she's an old, old, old friend, and I said, Tony, I don't know this, I'm, I'm not making it, you know, she was somebody you could say something like that, I'm just not making it, and so, you know, what's the matter, we talked and talked, and she is the one, and that's what she said, I'm, she said, Nikki, write it out. It's what, write it out. And it was good if I said thanks. And, of course, she, she drinks vodka, I drink wine, so you have a drink. <laughs> no, but write it out. And so that's what I began. That's when I started working mm-hmm. on The Good Cry. And so that's what I'm working on. And I don't know how the book is going to turn out. Probably nobody will like the book because I'll be the one writing about it. Yeah, I got it out. And everybody will say, you a terrible book. But I, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's uneven right now, and it's probably okay. stay uneven. Do you have any advice for the writers that we have here? I think you have to, you have to read something every day. I really do. If that's, other than when you go to Singapore, <laughs> go first class. I think you need to, to read something. 
I think that that's very important. And because my father was an alcoholic, by the way, I didn't drink until I was actually in my late 30s. And I realized I had done what I was going to do. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm an old woman. I can, I was like 34, 35. I said, I can drink. And that's when I, I said, I collect wines, but then I started to drink them. I have, I have some fabulous wines. It's like, damn, I need to drink these. And so um, <laughs> I do. I, if I got broke, I could sell three bottles of wine and, and pay for a trip to Hong Kong or Singapore. You know, I, yeah, no, I've been collecting wines uh, and I know what I'm doing. But Gus was an alcoholic. And so I was very, I didn't want to drink while my mother was with us because mm-hmm. I didn't want to, I just didn't want to take the chance. Mommy drank beer. And that's where we get chasing Utopia from because Utopia is a beer. And uh, when mommy died, I said, my dog was Wendy. Wendy was a sweet dog. She was a Karen Terrier. And I said to Wendy, you know, grandmother's dead. We ought to, we ought to drink a beer for grandmother. You know, just trying to be, you know. And she was, oof. So I, because uh, <laughs> she's a dog. I went up to, I don't like beer. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to drink a beer, I want to drink the best beer. And I think I'm a nice person, but I am a bit of a snob. So almost anything I want to do, I want the best of it. And so I went up to Barnes & Noble. I didn't realize they didn't like dogs in there. So the manager came over to me and said, Nick, you know, we don't allow dogs in. I said, well, I just want to know what the best beer is. You know, I'm not here. I don't want to buy the book either. I just want to know <laughs> what the best <laughs> Yeah, and, that's, that's classy as a writer well, to, do, to do that. It is, but I, I wasn't dealing with that. I just wanted to know. And the number one beer in the world is Utopia. It sells for $250 a pint. It's, uh, it's only out every other year. This is 16, so there's no Utopia. It's only every other year. It was out in 15, and it'll be out in 17. So, again, I'm, now I'm chasing, I'm chasing Utopia. And so I called my local wine store, I called Steve, and I said, you know, I, I, I put a bottle of uh, Utopia away from me. I don't care what it costs, and I'll, I'll be happy to come get it. He said, Nikki, we don't, uh, we don't sell Utopia. And you know how you talk to people when you think they don't understand you, and then they're going to talk back like they think you didn't hear them. So he said, I said, slower, because obviously he misunderstood me. <laughs> Keith, I need a bottle of Utopia. And he said back, Nikki, we don't sell it. And we did that for a little bit until I finally realized, oh, he doesn't sell Utopia. It took a while. So I called, there's a a, a wine store out here, and it's called uh, Bounty Hunter. And I don't know if any of you are wine, but it's Bounty Hunter. And so I called Bounty Hunter, and I said, I'm looking for Utopia. Can you help me out? And you could hear that one. That was that's a beer. We're a wine store. And I, I could, that chill came through and it was like, okay. <laughs> I, I hung up. Then I started chasing it. I started really, really looking for it. And I'm on tour. And so I'm going around and everything I'm going around, I'm looking for Utopia. We're not having any luck. And so now I'm doing something, if you don't mind me saying it, called bitching. And so as I'm doing radio and stuff, I'm bitching about this, this beer. And I finally get to the CIA because it's the year I spoke at the CIA, which was really very nice. And I said to Leon, because he knows everything, they know where everybody is, Panetta. (laughs) I said, I'm looking for utopia. And you know how men talk to women when they think we don't know what we're doing? And Leon looks at me and he says, and I'm sure you'll find it. And I said, oh, this this isn't working. And I ran into one of his assistants. And I said, can you help me out? I'm looking for utopia. And he passed me on the shoulder. He said, look deep within yourself. (laughs) And 
is one of the, in all fairness to everybody, there are times in life when you need a Negro. And I knew that that was one of the times I needed one. So I'm, I'm now going to find a Negro, somebody to understand what I'm doing. And I said, I'm looking for Utopia. He said, let me find a safe computer. And he looked up and he found it. But it was in Canada. And at this point now, I have my behind on my shoulder because I don't want to buy an American beer in Canada. So I'm still on tour complaining. And we get a call when I get to New York. We get a call. And he said, I'm the barista, barista for it's Sam Adams Beer. Please tell Dr. Giovanni we are sending her a utopia and the glasses to drink it out of. Because utopia is like a, a, a cocktail. Now, this is the fun part of that. I've only met two queens in my life. Queen Elizabeth came to United States, and she requested to meet me. She called my people. It's one of those, her people called my people, and she asked if I would meet. I would have walked to meet the queen, so it's like, whoa. <laughs> and she had Philip with her, and I'm a big fan of Philip's. So I went to meet the queen, and so that was really nice. I was cool. The other queen that I knew, that I know, is Queen Juanita, and she's the queen of Kano in Ghana. And so she knew about Utopia. And she said to me, Nikki, why don't you bring that, because I haven't drunk it yet. She said, why don't you bring that Utopia? I have now drunk. Why don't you bring that Utopia over and we'll drink it together? And I said, well, you know, TSA, uh, and I have a lot of faith in TSA, and I hope they keep bombs off the planes I'm on. I said, but TSA is not going to let me bring a, a beer. That's just not going to happen. If, if you want to drink it with me, and I'd be delighted, you're going to have to come to the United States. And she said, oh, baby, I'm not, I'm not coming to the United States anytime. Now, there's an expression in the black community, those of us who are black know, God is good all the time. Thank you. And her friend in Barbados got sick. So she went to see her friend in Barbados to help her friend out. And then she realized she's only four hours, Barbados is four hours, from Washington. So she called Kwame. She's Kwame's friend. She called Kwame and said, if I come to D.C., would you take me to Nikki's house? I'm thrilled. I, am, I have never, I mean, she's the only queen that's ever been in my house. I cleaned up. <laughs> I did. I mean, where are you going to see a queen that's like, oh, my God. And I am a good cook. I made a, a rack of lamb. I mean, it was beautiful. And everybody had, Jenny was there, so it's the four, Kwame, Queen Juanita. And we drank. We, everybody had the little glass. But Kwame and I didn't have good sense because neither one of us actually drank. So when I woke up in the morning, Queen Juanita was in my living room asleep. Jenny was in the bed asleep. Kwame and I were sitting at the kitchen table, drunk as lords. <laughs> so, so that's what happened to the one, to, that, yeah, to that, the utopia. That's what happens when you reach utopia. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it was fun. I wish my mother had been here. We're going to close this way. I'm going to have you read the last paragraph. Right there. This is from your book, Racism 101. I hope by discussing sports and homelessness, race and current television, world news, scientific wonders, and anything else that comes to mind, that I am showing my students that they must contemplate the world in which they live. I believe their responsibility as writers is to have as much sympathy for the rich as for the poor, as much pity for the beautiful as for the ugly as much interest in the mundane as in the exotic. Meatloaf is a wonderful thing, as worthy of a poem as any spring day or heroic deed. The exercise I try to install is, look. Allow yourself to look beyond what is into what can be, and more into what should be. 
Poems are dreams, dream, but dreams are conceived in reality. Meatloaf is real. Write that poem. Nikki Giovanni, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.